I admit it, we bring you all sorts of weird and wonderful stories on the Little Wireless program, but I doubt we've brought you a story any stranger than this. It's a true story of how a group of Japanese snow monkeys from a mountain near Kyoto somehow wound up on a hot, dusty ranch in southern Texas in the mid-1970s. How and why they ended up there is a wild and at times mysterious tale. Sarah Bird is an award-winning writer and novelist with a special connection to this story. In fact, she has a number of special connections to it. She's written a butte piece for the Texas Monthly, uh, where she uh, tries to track down this fabled population 50 years on, and she now joins me from her home in Austin, Texas. Sarah, welcome. You first encountered the monkeys as an undergrad student way back in 1975. What drew you back into their orbit? Oh, Phil, the, I, I have a, a long-time emotional connection with the snow monkeys of Japan. I grew up in an Air Force family, and we were stationed in in Japan in the mid-50s to late-60s you know, during my childhood. So in that kind of enchanted time, which was a pretty enchanted time in Japan, I I grew up on reading Japanese fairy tales, and one of the chief heroines heroes among the um, in the Japanese fairy tales were snow monkeys, which were kind of revered trickster characters in, in Japanese folklore. And they are, uh, as as I'm sure your listeners are aware, just possibly the most adorable animals on earth. These uh, fuzzy little monkeys with pink faces. I dreamed of actually someday holding one. Uh, fast forward to um, I'm at the University of Texas, and lo and behold, there's a notice for a snow monkey roundup. <laughs> which, uh, I was in journalism at that time, and I said, oh, yes, yeah, sign me up. So that's how I ended up in, uh, <laughs> well, you in a write, ranch. You, you write charmingly that, in a sense, uh, you have this in common. You were both transported from the land of the rising sun to the land of the roasting sun. Oh gosh, yeah, that was that was rough. Um, you know, it really was a fairy tale country uh, at that point, especially for an American child. You know, uh, the worst of the war was over, and and we had proved ourselves to be pretty beneficent conquerors. So, uh, American children were kind of adored, and we had a, we were ripped out of that lovely snowy chilly environment and thrust into um my father ended up being stationed in Harlingen in Texas which is way south Texas and blisteringly hot so i <laughs> i could relate to those monkeys being <laughs> taken out of their little dreamy world now sarah i learned from you that alongside humans they're the only primate that can withstand extreme cold describe describe a snow monkey to an Australian listener. Well, this, you know, the most famous photographs of snow monkeys are those taken by Life magazine in the in the 60s. And one particular one shows a snow monkey. And this is, you know, fluffy, furry, tawny furred animal with a adorable pink face luxuriating in the hot springs. They learn to to warm themselves in the hot springs and, you know, 
not chill out, but warm up uh, and chill out in the hot springs. So there's a famous life photograph of snow monkeys luxuriating in the hot springs with snow on their fur. And they typically, they average about 18 to 25 pounds. You know, they're kind of the size of a, of a toddler when they stand up. So um, just very, very much the perfect little primate. Well, they sound adorable, and in fact, I have the advantage of looking at the, looking at the photograph you're describing, and I'm holding it up to the microphone so all the our listeners can see it. Now, the big question: Why on earth were the monkeys transported from Japan to Texas? This is quite a tale, Phil. Indeed. So. Um the monkeys in their natural habitat lived in the snowy mountains outside of Kyoto. And primatologists, our animal behaviorists at that time, became interested in them, started tracking them, started identifying troop members, but they really, really wanted to follow them longitudinally. So they began laying out provisions, wheat and apples, and the monkeys um, began to gather at these feeding stations so that the the scientists began recognizing all the members of the troop and making these really astonishing findings about uh, snow monkey society and how it's essentially matrilineal. Most of the power derives from the mother in the troop. And and they they just, you know, this, this body of knowledge became quite impressive, quite impressive as, as the years went by. Uh, to the point... Um, Though that the they they kept provisioning these monkeys and more and more came down to the feeding stations, and they had a little habitat around there. And because you know they had this regular food source, their population exploded. And so they also this, this, became unafraid of humans, I guess. There you go, Phil. And that that really is the point to be made. They they realized, oh, you know these these humans are actually our feeding machines, and so that yeah, the fear of humans disappeared. <laughs> And as they outgrew their habitat, they started raiding the vegetable gardens in the in the suburbs of Kyoto. And and at that point, they were national treasures. They had been labeled a protected species in the late 40s, but they became kind of public nuisances. So the national treasures became a public nuisance as they raided the gardens and stole laundry off the laundry lines and Kind of most unforgivably, they took to to perching in the rafters of Buddhist temples and and <laughs> pooping upon the congregants. <laughs> this was really well, not appreciated. That would so that'd be a was, deal. That would be a deal breaker. Yes, I can it was that. a deal breaker, Phil. <laughs> it's like very cute you are, but you cannot poop on my head. Uh, and so the troop <laughs> was <laughs> the troop was divided in half, and a new home. Was they tried to find a new home for one half of this troop, about 150 monkeys, uh, and their other fate would have been either zoos or the dissection table. So this giant hue and cry went out in the international primate world to preserve these monkeys and and all the data that had been collected about them. Apparently, you know, they had a few uh, takers. None of them really worked out until. This rancher in South Texas decided he would take them in, and that—that that is how this happened. That's how these 
snow monkeys ended up in South Texas. Now, look, I, I have a security clearance, so I can ask you this question. How did they get transported across How the Pacific to a ranch in Texas? <laughs> yeah, there's a bit of lore about that. Uh, one story has it that they were essentially taken under the cover of night because this was in the midst of the Vietnam War and uh, there was a lot of protests in Japan. And the real story is that they were they were transported by uh, Japan Airlines. And then for some reason, I don't understand, the Arizona National Guard stepped in to bring them the final step of the way. But uh, they did eventually end up at this at this in Texas, and they might as well have landed on the moon for all the resemblance it bore to their piney, snowy homeland. It's full of there. it's full of thorny cactus and uh, and dangers exactly. like co- coyotes and enter stage right rattlesnakes. Precisely, yeah, and they're in their homeland. They've had virtually no predators. I mean, occasional feral dog or, or um, a hawk, or but. Very, very rare. And then so suddenly they were confronted with coyotes and bobcats and, and as you say, rattlesnakes. But there are just so many parts of the story that that point to their incredible adaptation. And that is one of them, is that they, after three infant monkeys were were, were taken by the rattlers, uh, they developed a, a special call, a special al- alarm to warn other members of the troop if a rattlesnake was near. And after that, there were no more deaths from rattlesnakes. It's kind of just impressive. Now, they also started breeding energetically, much more so than they would have back home. <laughs> that's right. That's that's right. Yeah, they were kind of in every sort of step of the way of their, uh, their journey here in Texas. They were victims of their own success, but they were – their their adaptation was was incredibly impressive and and the troop grew and grew and and out, a- you know, any escapees kind of, did any go rogue you know occasionally some would go rogue and especially the males which you know around their teen years like all like all teen primates they want to get away from mom and dad and so they would venture out further and further and in the um uh I want to say the late, like mid nineties, they there there started to be reports from ranchers, and these are the most inoffensive creatures. They there are no records of of macaques in this situation harming humans, but a lot of sorry lot of macaques. Folks, I understand that's the technical description. They are they are monkeys, but their Latin name is macaca fuscata, and and they're generally called macaques. But they they're monkeys, and they had been protected uh, in Texas by the Fish and Game Department. Then after these sightings and whatnot, and they really were just sightings. You know, they'd appear in deer blinds or, or something like that. And their their protected status was removed for one year. And one year in this tiny town in South Texas, it was a frenzy of monkey hunting, which, uh, you know, in retrospect was was quite appalling. Um, These are when someone loop, were lured, you know, from right. the ranch and uh, shot on the other side of a fence. Yes, the three, three monkeys, female monkeys were killed. And that, again, caused an international furor, uh, you know, to save this 
this troop and and their data. And this time, the uh, alarm was answered by none other than Wayne Newton, the entertainer, Mr. Las Vegas. And he choppered in and did a benefit to secure. Uh, a, I'm a, sorry, <laughs> this story gets <laughs> this weirder. This story, I mean, weirder. honestly, <laughs> I, I'm I'm so I'm so thrilled that you appreciate this story. I think it's a, an unbelievable story, and I'm just astonished <laughs> it's not better known. So Wayne Newton choppers in and has a benefit <laughs> for the monkeys. <laughs> he's he's a huge animal lover and. This you know exhibited in this way, but he was one of the benefactors uh, in, in in the establishment of a new site, a uh, more secure site where that was supposed to be the happy ending. Now, before we go on with this, I want you to tell me about your relationship with a monkey called Pelka. Pelka, yes, Pelka is kind of the emotional center of my story, in the sense that. Um, Pelka was the monkey I held during this roundup, and this roundup was held for the purposes of gathering all of the monkeys together. This was in 1975. They had been in Texas a couple of years, and the uh, facility wanted to gather them all together and make sure they're all inoculated and, and tattoo them so they could all be identified. In order to do that, they had to be drugged. So uh, they needed all these volunteers to hold the monkeys as they recovered from the uh, tranquilizers. And I was holding Pelka. Pelka was was my assigned monkey. She was a 10-year-old and had a one-year-old baby. So this, her official name, according to the Japanese uh, naming practice, was Pelka 65, meaning she was born in 1965. And her baby was Pelka 6575, meaning she was the daughter of Pelka 65, and she had been born in 1975. So she was a first generation. The baby was a first generation Texan. And just that moment, Philip, it was, as I said, the fulfillment of a childhood dream that I got to hold a fuzzy, adorable pink face snow monkey. And she was just warm and cuddly and very, very baby sized. Uh, At that also because they were tranquilized, she allowed me to look into her eyes, these unearthly hazel eyes, which is a big taboo in, in macaque society, but because you know she was on drugs that allowed this to happen. So I just felt this intense bonding with this monkey. And then of course she recovered from the tranquilizer and sort of, you know, wobbled away. Trust American, trust Americans to get these monkeys on drugs. I don't know. Now, <laughs> I'd like you to tell me about, uh, well, it's the pandemic and you're determined to find out whether the population is still alive. Exactly. Exactly. I, you know, I had that moment, you know, that Marie Kondo instructs us all to have in which you have to declutter your house so I was in the midst of decluttering my house, which is kind of monumental if you could see my house. And I came across this trove of my old clippings of old stories that I'd done starting way back when, you know, before I I went to writing novels, I did journalism. So there were you know, clips of all my old stories. And suddenly I was looking at Pelka again. They had used the photograph I took of her and her baby as the cover on the publication I did the story for, which was student magazine. And here is this beautiful, beautiful Pelka. And I knew that she would not have been around given 
that this was, you know, 40 some odd years later and, and monkey, the monkey's lifespan is in captivity. They, they generally 25 years. So I knew she wouldn't be around, but I was wondering about her daughter, maybe her granddaughter and just in general, what, what happened to the troop? I, I had sort of lost track of them after the hubbub over Wayne Newton. And I really, I really wanted to find out what had happened to Pelka and her babies. Tell me about a woman called Lou Griffin. Oh, Lou. Oh, Lou Phil. In my opinion, she's the absolute hero of this story and of the whole the whole snow monkey in, in Texas saga. Lou Griffin studied with the um, professor at the University of Texas who was instrumental in, in getting the monkeys transported down to the the ranch in, in near Laredo. And she was a student of his, fell in love with the monkeys, and essentially dedicated her life to them at the at the time when in the original home, the owner died, the Laredo rancher died, and and she was at that point married to the scion of a ranching family. She got the family to put aside 100 acres on their ranch for the monkeys. So she was, uh, you know, solely responsible for saving them that time. And then just utterly dedicated herself to this troop, to studying them. She hosted visiting scientists, visiting students, uh, kept track of the records, and they they thrived in in this their next setting. Uh, but she's very, very just utterly dedicated to these monkeys and the study. And um, I mean, you've read the article, and I, you know, did not have a happy ending, particularly to her story, in the sense that ultimately, she was uh, kicked out, kicked out by by an organization that that took over, took over the the management of the of the monkey facility. Yeah, an animal welfare group didn't hold her in very high regard. So many stories and uh, so many snow monkeys, including descendants of Pelka. Have you right. made contact recently? I went down to their to their current home, and it, their current home is is impeccable. It's really really lovely. It's it's run by uh, the Born Free uh, group, and they really are just just taken care of as perfectly as could be imagined. It's kind of like the idea, but it's sort of an assisted living facility in a way, in that they're no longer having babies, and and that's the goal of, of this group, which. Is admirable and it's in in its own way. It's kind of a clash of of philosophies about animal welfare. Very, very, very interesting t- discussion around that. So there, and I went and visited, and in fact, I did catch a glimpse of certainly the snow monkeys, and but they never got close enough for to determine whether that was actually a descendant of Pelka. But I'm told that within the group that I observed there was a descendant of the monkey I held. And on that uh, happy and slightly enigmatic note, thanks for coming <laughs> on the program. I've been talking to Sarah Bird, a writer extraordinaire, so many credentials, and uh, you can read about her search for the Japanese snow monkeys of Texas at the Texas Monthly website. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you, Phil. I've enjoyed it so much. 
ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.